Hello and welcome to Bellhaven Podcast. I'm your host, Brent Weber. On today's episode, we'll be listening to PSY 352, Social Psychology with Professor Nathan Smith. I hope you listen and enjoy. So continuing on on that point, how does scripture define aggression? Uh, there is a lot of aggression in the scriptures of uh, various kinds. It would actually it would be interesting for someone to go through and break down the scriptural aggressions. Uh, I'll jump back. It would be interesting to go back and break it down by physical, verbal, direct, and indirect, active, passive. Uh, it would take a long time, but it would certainly be um, interesting to see how, um, how aggression breaks down. Actually, it would be really interesting as you break that down then you create a graph that shows how it changes as you move uh, from Genesis in the beginning all the way through Revelation. Um, so, uh, in interesting and interesting to think about. Um, so, looking at the points um, on, on uh, aggression in Scripture. So, there's some difficulty in interpreting obvious mandates to aggress against other groups. Um, difficulty of interpreting, uh, as always, when it comes to interpreting scripture, I'm going to point you towards your uh, pastors, your church elders, your theology professors, and folks for whom that is what they do. And my hope is that in return, when it comes to working in psychological um, phenomenon, they will point you towards your psychology professors, your counseling professors, uh, myself, and the other folks who uh, work with psychology psychological thoughts on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but that being said, uh, we, we do have this to talk about, and so uh, I will just make a couple of small points. But as always, uh, head to those folks I mentioned previously uh, for more complete discussions. Now, so there are obvious mandates uh, to aggress against other groups in the Old Testament. Um, God's violence, uh, though, is for salvific purposes, that is, for the purposes of salvation. Um, and the scriptures, um, particularly uh, the Gospels, particularly um, the words and teachings of Christ, often condemn human violent aggression, uh, which is sin. Right? We're familiar with uh, when Christ talks about, you have heard it said, uh, love those who love you, but I say, you know, love your enemies. So this type of um, unprecedented, um, overwhelming love, which is not even, not just to simply love those who love you, but to love your enemies, to do good to those who persecute you. Um, we see this type of, of um, incredible stand against uh, uh, physical aggression, particularly physical violent aggression. Um, interesting to think about this um, in contrast to, um, I was just talking about Dr. King in the previous um, section, there was a lot of aggressive behavior in um, done by Dr. King and others during the civil rights era, but it wasn't a violent aggression, it was uh, generally it was passive resistance, so-called passive resistance, P-A-S-S-I-V, um, sit-ins and marches and uh, boycotts and these types of uh, acts that are aggressive but not violent. And um, 
and of course this was um, trying trying to um, trying to achieve these greater positive social goals while while following uh, Christ's um, commands not to use violence but to use uh, other ways and some of this gets into um, just war theory and Christian pacifism and and sort of topics that take us far afield from social psychology and so uh, I'm not going to to trace those lines far afield um, but but suffice it to say that um, there are a lot of uh, a lot of interpretations, uh, a lot of uh, different ways that uh, Christians have looked at violence and pacifism and aggression throughout history. And if you're interested in them, I highly recommend that you uh, research them uh, further. They're interesting topics and certainly worthy of your time and attention. And then the final point here: Christ's lineage even shows the humanizing of outgroup members whose groups had been aggressed against. Uh, and not just in Christ's lineage, but also in Christ's actions, of course. We see, um, we see Christ uh, addressing people who would not otherwise have been addressed uh, in those times. You think of tax collectors, you think of the woman at the well with the multiple, uh, the multiple husbands. Um, I think of the story of the Good Samaritan, a, a racial group that was ostracized, being cast as the protagonist uh, in a story about doing good. So, so this concept of, of Christ's humanizing of outgroup members um, starts, of course, in his lineage, but then continues uh, all throughout his teaching. Gosh, I'm, I'm moving into uh, preaching mode, which is not where I want to be, so we'll try and move forward and stay in social psychology. Uh, so a uh, big interesting section on religious extremists and aggression. Um, the, the selective readings of scripture are often associated with the violence and religious extremists, and religious extremism is not something that is new, of course, it can go all the way back, um, all the way back to Roman days and before, um, but there's this concept of God-ordained violence, and when this God-ordained violence is taken out of context, um, it can be used to uh, to um, have tremendous acts of violence, tremendously uh, bad, uh, awful, evil acts that can be done um, in a in a God or in a so-called God ordained way, or by people who are saying that God ordained this violence. Uh, so if a person believes that violence is ordained by scripture, they're more likely to commit or condone that violent act. And there was some work on this uh, that we read about in the chapter. And it's kind of a scary thing and an important thing for Christians to be aware of. Um, you know, continue to think, continue to uh, to pray, uh, and, and um, just be, be present. Use the gift of presence uh, to be aware of your own beliefs and the beliefs of people around you, because when when people uh, stop seeking God, when they stop praying, when they stop thinking and shut their minds and their hearts off, then uh, these acts of uh, of God ordained violence, so called God ordained violence, uh, are more possible. So uh, be vigilant, be vigilant uh, against that. 
and sexual violence. So sexual violence is a huge field. Um, we're not going to get deeply into um, a discussion of it. We're just going to hit on some of the main concerns. Um, vast majority of victims are female, uh, although the more work that is done, the more that we find um, the more that we find male victims. Unfortunately, there are a lot more victims, both male and female, out there than uh, than can be found by regular research methods. It's something that's tremendously difficult to research um, because of the taboos against talking about sexual violence, um, particularly if it's within a family or within a small community, within a small social group. Um, can be very difficult to get accurate information, but uh, best best estimates um, to something like uh, college-aged women, you'll have about one in four who will have experienced sexual violence, uh, and men slightly less than that, one in five or so. Um, so rape-prone cultures, this is interesting when we talk about um, taking a macro view on things. We look at things at a cultural level, so rape-prone cultures, uh, in general, they'll have a high level of violence overall, uh, they'll have women assaulted by uh, enemies. Uh, they might have sex used as a part of male rite of passage into manhood. And they, they might have rape used to coerce women. And these are our, our cultural level things that have um, an impact on, uh, on rapes, occurrences of rape uh, at a cultural level. So this is just for help on what we're doing. We're pulling back to the macro and looking uh, really country by country of these, or a uh, large cultural group by large cultural group. So now, turning to biological explanations of aggression. So there's no consistent evidence for biological factors, although there are some suggested connections. So free prefrontal cortex, uh, you know, we don't do a lot of brain in this class, um, but uh, we could, we just don't. Um, uh, for a number of reasons. <clears throat> so your prefrontal cortex, um, where a lot of your, uh, a, a lot of the higher level thinking comes from. So when you have damage to this uh, prefrontal cortex, um, you have higher levels of violence in general, but that goes in, just in general with less inhibition. There's higher level, when you have damage in the prefrontal cortex, you have higher levels of all sorts of things that are associated with less inhibition. Um, most of them, many of them, are very negative. Uh, so your inhibitions, the things that inhibit your behavior, were put in place for good reason and are very useful to you. Um, so uh, when you have a, a lack of those inhibitions, uh, you can have a lot of problematic uh, behaviors. The amygdala dysfunction there is associated with psych uh, psychopathy. Uh, serotonin, which is a brain chemical, uh, lowers levels associated with higher aggression. If you think of serotonin, you might think of um, SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, uh, a common chemical uh, drug used um, to treat uh, all kinds of common um, psychological disorders. Um, and then behavioral genetics um, genes may be related to cold or unemotional traits. And then finally, um, evolutionary psychology perspective on aggression. Again, uh, I don't ever ask you to uh, believe uh, or 
have a personally invested belief in any type of uh, belief system. Um, uh, obviously, you have to be a Christian to be at this university, but um, for, from a social psych perspective, I don't ask you to, to take on any uh, outer belief system, but I do expect you to understand it and be able to use it. Uh, as I talked about in the first lecture, you need to be able to put that mask on. So uh, we're putting the mask on evolutionary psychology, and when you're done with it, you may take it off and place it aside, but you do have to have the skill to be able to put it on um, for brief periods of time uh, in order to understand um, the concept. So how would aggression come from a survival or, or a reproductive uh, advantage? You could uh, obtain or maintain resources better. It could be better in self-defense. It could help you rise in the social hierarchy. It could deter a long-term mate from infidelity, this type of aggression. Uh, you could regain former mates. So that this goes back to uh, the reproductive advantage. And finally, obtaining sexual access to otherwise unattainable social mates. And again, that's, that's sort of broken roughly into survival that is resources, self-defense, and social hierarchy, and then reproductive advantage. That is uh, long-term mates, um, and then uh, regaining mates and obtaining uh, sexual access to otherwise obtainable social mates. So that's the evolutionary psychology perspective.